Welcome to Pat Sherlock's podcast series, interviews with top mortgage sales leaders. Learn practical tips for improving sales management results. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Pat Sherlock, and welcome to the podcast. Today's topic is top three emerging trends for 2022. 2022 is right around the corner. I'm excited to have as our superstar expert, Kurt Riesig. He is chairman and founder of American Pacific Mortgage. American Pacific Mortgage is a national lender with over 200 branches and 1,500 mortgage loan officers. Hi, Kurt. Good morning, Pat. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to have you on this important topic. But before we kind of jump into that, Kurt, talk to us. And I've heard your story before, but share with everyone that is our listeners how you got into mortgage banking and how did you get into managing? Well, thanks for asking that question, Pat. And again, it's an honor to be here today and, and uh, talk to you and whoever else is listening. I got into mortgage banking a little bit by fluke, like a, a, a lot of people do. I, I uh, was in a transition in my career. I'd had, I'd had a, a nice career early on in my 20s with a, in the oil industry, and I was living back in Houston, Texas. And But after six, seven years in Houston, I decided I wanted to get back to, to my roots in California, Northern California specifically. And so I uh, started job hunting in, in Northern California. Uh, there, there, there is no oil industry in Northern California, so it required a, a, a career change for me, and I, I uh, investigated a lot of things, commercial real estate, you know, a number of other, you know, opportunities, but, you know, ultimately strolled into a bank one day and applied for a job as a loan officer, frankly, not really knowing anything about what a loan officer did. And I remember after the interview, I called my dad, who was a, a seasoned real estate investor, and he, his response was, mortgage banking, yeah. Any, any idiot can do that. You'll do great, son. And so with that wonderful endorsement from my dad, when they offered me the job that next day, you know, I, I did go ahead and accept the job. And, uh, and I accepted it because what I liked about mortgage banking, what I could see even in my ignorance about you know, not even knowing what the difference between an FHA and a VA loan was, that as it had been described to me, it was a career where I wasn't necessarily limited uh, as to my ability to advance my career and my business and my income. And that immediately attracted me. I'd been comparing that to commercial real estate where the custom back then in commercial real estate is you spent a couple of years in pretty much indentured servitude, and regardless of how well you did, and you just had to pay your dues. It was a bit of a uh, fraternity type environment, if you will. And so, when I saw that, that there wasn't really a limit on my potential in mortgage banking, I accepted the job uh, with, with the bank. And uh, that really began my career. There's a whole, you know, the rest of the story about, you know, what happened after that. I, I didn't stay with the bank that long. I realized before uh, too long that a bank compared to a mortgage bank was not as optimal as, as uh, it, it seemed at the beginning. And uh, within seven months, made the move from working for a depository, which no, again, there's a lot of great loan officers working for the depositories, but uh, that particular lender didn't have any government programs. And Sacramento area where I live was a government town. So I had to have government programs and the movie to a mortgage banker was the way to get access to those programs. And 
And so I had the good luck to encounter a, a great company and a great mentor here in the Sacramento region at the time. And, and that really was what you know, launched my career. So, Kurt, how did you get into managing? So you started in the traditional role that everyone pretty much in mortgage banking, they started out as a loan officer. So how did you get into managing? Well, I, I worked for a company that was a very progressive mortgage banking firm and composed of, of a, a series of branches in Northern California and actually the, the Pacific Northwest as well. And they had a habit of when a successful originator became ambitious enough to, to want to you know, open their own office, uh, that they were allowed to do so, provided that they had the production and, and uh, the capital behind them to do so. And so without really any management training per se, they allowed me to you know, designate myself as a branch manager and open the shop. And that's when I opened uh, Big Valley Mortgage, which is really the, the original founding shop for American Pacific Mortgages right here in Northern California, basically Granite Bay, California. And, uh, and so I kind of like my story of, of how I just kind of slid into mortgage banking. I, I embarked myself on the management. I wasn't anointed by anyone other really than myself. Of course, my company allowed me to take that position, so I must have presented them with the skill sets they felt were necessary to open a branch, yet I really didn't have management skills. And uh, so my first five, six, seven years of running a shop, that was in 1990 when I uh, opened Big Valley Mortgage, was really where I got my management training in uh, having to, I, I grew quite a bit during those five, six years and I dealt with a couple of market cycles. I dealt with a recession in the early 90s. I dealt with you know, plummeting real estate values in the early 90s, particularly in the Sacramento area. I dealt with some pretty hard interest rate shifts. And those all you know, served to teach me some really valuable lessons that, that ultimately, you know, I think, became part of my management you know, suite of skills, if you will. You know, some of it, I, I, I was the head recruiter. I was the head financial advisor for the company. I was also the head salesperson for the company. So, you know, I wore, you pick a management hat and I pretty much wore every one of those hats during the first six, seven years of running my company. And, and that's really how I got into management was I shoved myself into it and learned by experiencing the ups and downs of what running a business is really like. Well, let's uh, fast forward now 30 years later, and you're chairman of one of the largest mortgage companies in the United States. What is your current business uh, challenges that you face as chairman? I've been blessed by the opportunity to work with many CEOs and many companies and many industries. And, uh, you know, of course, every business, we have cycles in the business, whether there's cycles in interest rates, cycles in the economy, these things that go on, they're just part of that. I mean, that's just the normal part of business that every successful company has to adapt to. And our business certainly has uh, more, I would say, profound cycles than I would say most businesses. And that might be something we can come back to because I think it's an interesting aspect of our business that makes it quite unique. But the, you know, the biggest challenges are always people, right? In growing a company, it is all about hiring and empowering people to get on board with the vision of the company, get on board with the values of the company, and help expand the message that that we have and the, and the vision we have for where we want to go as as a company. And probably going back to managing that that's that 
became and always is the biggest challenge is growing my skill set to be able to deal with the day-to-day challenges of how do I identify the right people? You know, what are really the, the, the areas of the organization that really needs a level of expertise that doesn't exist here today or doesn't exist in sufficient quantities for us to achieve our goals? And then how do you create cohesiveness and a team play with a team that one is brought on board to help a company you know, achieve its goals? Having the right people in the right seats, and that's almost cliche-ish anymore. I think what one of the great things about being in business today is you know, when I started back in the you know, 80s and 90s, much of what you had to use was intuition about how we thought someone, I mean, you certainly had resumes, but about how people would perform and, and the, the, some of the quirks associated with human dynamics. And now we have so many incredible tools that give us more insights into how people are wired. And, and so that's something that I've invested heavily as a company and also uh, for myself personally to, first of all, understand myself and, and my style and how I am prone to respond in, in uh, certainly under pressure, but uh, also how others respond under pressure and how an effective leader becomes aware, first of all, of themselves and then of how uh, others respond to pre- pressure so that we can give them more helpful coaching to keep them back on track because what we really all really want to do is get back on the path of being prosperous we want to get back and being on path of being successful and when we're oftentimes when we're triggered we're not in our best mode and so creating a successful team in an organization around people and having those people operating effectively as a team which again a lot of that comes back to that team understanding one another and finding a way to get on track to achieve the company's goals. Well, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I've spent the last 20 years on this exact topic because similar to yourself, I also had a long career in capital markets and kind of different types of things besides the world of selling. And I can't agree more. And it's unfortunate that some people don't recognize that. And I'd say that's probably one of the the great advantages that you have that you do recognize it, which leads me to, Kurt, I I see where one of your, when I look on your website, it says create experiences that matter. How did you come up with that? I thought that was such a cool slogan. It really goes back to uh, being part of our brand. So the the creating experiences that matter is part of our branding message. It's part of what you know what we're aspiring to do every day relative to our customers. Which in our environment, our first customers are our branch managers and our loan officers because we know we know and understand that we get the opportunity to work with the consumer because our successful branch managers and loan officers go out and build relationships in their communities that bring borrowers into the organization. And so, and then uh, in doing that, then we all collectively aspire to create the best experience for the consumer, something that really matters, something that makes a a difference to them and in the way we do business. And that ultimately was part of a, you know, a branding process that, that we went through a number of years ago. And when we started the company, American Pacific Mortgage in 1997, like many enterprising, I was still relatively young at the time, you know, aspiring leaders, we said, okay, we have to have company values. And so we, we created these seven or eight, what we, you know, what we identified as values of the company and they kind of wrapped around our logo and some of our other messaging. But a number of years later, really coming out of the mortgage crisis, 
we began this process of taking a harder look at our brand, our brand message, um, how do we want to be known in the marketplace, and we realized that, that we needed to revamp the whole thing. And so that branding process began by, um, first of all, getting clear about how we want to be known in the marketplace, and how we want to might be known in the marketplace is that we do everything we possibly can to make our employees, particularly our managers and loan officers, look good. That's how we want to be known. We don't want to be known as the biggest. We don't want to be known for the cheapest. We don't want to be known for you know, all you know many other things we could choose. We want to be known that for the company that aspires to make its employees look good in the eyes of the consumer. Because it, we acknowledge, as I already have, that that's how that's how we succeed as an organization. So we got really clear about that. Number one. Number two. Then we got really clear about our our values. Which again, so to determine that, we went back actually and did a deep dive, an assessment of how did we conduct ourselves during the meltdown, and what were the key characteristics of our company that we exhibited when we were really truly under duress, and that really contributed to us surviving and then thriving as a company, and and so we ultimately arrived on our three core values the, of transparency, you know, respect and scrappy, which is our way of saying being just, you know, uber, roll up your sleeves, resourceful kind of company that we are. And that was the second leg of that branding process. And the last the last leg of it was, well, I should say there's two more legs. So there's four legs. <laughs> the, the third leg was, you know, what are we really trying to say? What do we really want to cr create to deliver to the people that work for us and the people that we have the privilege of providing home loans for? And that was ultimately creating experiences that matter. And you think about that word matter, that it's, it's not just, oh yeah, you know, I, I work for them or, oh yeah, I, I got my loan from them. It's like, no, we want, we want to create or uh, elicit a response that is deeper and more meaningful by virtue of dealing with it. Obviously it's highly aspirational and uh, there's, you know, we do it plenty of times and there's other times that we don't. That's what we're shooting for every day is creating an experience that matters when you work for us or when you uh, come to us for a home loan. And the last part of that process to put a bookend on it was our uh, logo and our branding. Just about two years ago now, we you know, completely reformed our brand. We already had the brand message and the other things behind it, but the visual of our brand that you see now is something that we rolled out just a couple of years ago. All of this was part of a process that really began seven years ago, almost eight years ago, and, and it was designed to, to help the organization have complete clarity from end to end, from top to bottom, about who we are, what we do, what we're aspiring to create, and just, you know, what the message is we want into the industry and the community out there. And uh, uh, so that's uh, that's a long way to answer, a five-minute answer to your question. No, it's a, that's a great answer, which leads to my next question about, and you've kind of already touched upon it, but you've seen good markets, bad markets, and really terrible markets. And so what are kind of a couple of the biggest lessons you've learned over all of them? It sounded like it was the people side of it, but talk about what your thoughts are. Well, yeah, and then, again, people side of it, this is just the day-to-day -day and good times and bad times. There are, you know, there's always opportunities to do better with our people and help them work more effectively together. That's just, you know, no matter how good the business is or how bad the business is, that that's those issues never go away. You know, I think 
and I've said this many, many times, many, many years. I mean, we have an incredible industry in that when the economy is doing really, really well, people are buying homes and, and uh, they're moving. And, and so there's opportunities to help people get into homes. On the other hand, when the economy is maybe uh, going into recession or slowing down, that's typically the time that we see interest rates plummet and then maybe purchase slow down a little bit, but, but then we have the opportunity to help people in refinance markets. Now, I, you know, to pause for a second, the last couple of years have been very disjointed with respect to how the, the, these cycles work. I still think they're relevant. My, what I mean by that is we had this you know, recession that began in 2020 and rates plummeted, and then the economy has been on fire for the last seven months, eight months, year, but we still have had really low rates. So things are out of whack in this little time period, just like they were out of whack for a couple of years after, you know, 07, 08. The normal cycles are like that. When the economy's doing well, rates go up, refis go down, and uh, when the economy's slowing down, refis go up, and purchase transactions tends to go down. And so the trick in this business is navigating the transitions, whatever they are, that's the most common transition in the marketplace is from a low rate environment to a high rate environment. And how does a company navigate that transition? Are they prepared with, whether it's you know financial reserves or are they prepared with a strategy for how they're going to reposition themselves in, in the market? For example, um, in a sales conference that we had with our, all of our branch managers and originators a couple weeks ago, you know, we shared that you know, our company is you know, over 70% purchased, which I think is a healthy norm for a mortgage company because there's always going to be a certain amount of your borrowers that are refinancing for one reason or another to get cash out, to pay off bills, other life you know, changes. But so that's a really healthy number. But you know, we're aware of a lot of mortgage companies out there that have, have gone up to 60, 70, you know, 80%, some even more a refinance business. And generally when rates go up, when they do finally and firmly go up, and we're dealing with a 4% interest rate environment, for example, which is very feasible within the next, you know, four to six months, then 80% of that refinance business is gonna go away. So if a company is 80% refi, and then 80% of that goes away, what they're left with is about, I don't know, 30% of their normal volume that uh, they enjoyed during the height of this thing. Are they ready? Have they pivoted? What are their strategies to backfill that volume? What are their strategies to try to, to do the right thing with by their employees and adaptive cost infrastructure? And so, again, to get to the, the point of answering your question is, is, you know, companies successful in this business have been able to adapt to new climates, you know, quickly and successfully. And that's what we've been able to do. And, and you know, granted, there's little, Quite a number of companies are a lot bigger than me, and that's that's not our prize anyway. Our our prize is different than the size. But uh, successful companies like ours and you know other peers that we have have done a great job of adapting to those cycles and turning uh, what can be turmoil into opportunity, and that's what we've always done. So, Kurt, let's talk about next year, 2022, and I can't agree more with you that it's going to be interesting to see a lot of companies probably aren't going to make it, but talk about the top trends that you see for next year. Well, I, I mentioned one. I, I think interest rates are going to trend up, and, and I'll qualify that. I, there, there are some of those out there who believe that if and when or, you know, 
the supply chain issues abate that we'll see inflation you know go you know flying the other direction and maybe even roll into some type of recessionary trend which could drop rates i'm you know i i uh, i don't claim to be a prognosticator of the future that's a possibility but everything else right now you know six percent inflation points to higher interest rates and so we're going to see higher interest rates and the smart company positions themselves for that if rates go down i'll be happy to say boy pat i was wrong about <laughs> rates going up meanwhile i'm going to be doing a ton of loans but it, it behooves me to position myself for that so i think rates are going to be heading up and, and that's the environment we're going to be dealing with and secondarily i, I think that we're really going to see even more acceleration of and i'll just use my term you know, the the digitization of the industry everything from e-close finally really coming to pass because the agencies and the other aggregation part of the industry will finally get behind it because that's why it hasn't really gathered momentum so far is the big guys aren't ready to take e-notes and so but they're gonna i think make big headway in 2022 and take us all more down that path and meanwhile there's multiple forms of technology, including many applications of AI that are going to streamline our process. One of the interesting things in this industry is despite you know, the huge volume, the cost to close a home loan has continued to be stubbornly high for the industry. And uh, it, it's very difficult for companies to adapt new process time-saving, money-saving technologies while we're flying down the road at 80 miles an hour. But as we slow down next year, it will create the opportunity and the necessity from a cost standpoint for companies to adopt more and more technology solutions to streamline the process. And this is gonna be everything from saving money for the organizations to create to creating a better experience for the, for the consumer. And so I think that's uh, another significant trend we're gonna see next year. And, and lastly, I think we're just going to see consolidation. So, you know, I don't know that, that there may be companies that don't make it because if they have, you know, if they've got a decent platform and a, you know, a wise management team, there's no reason for a company to go out of business in, in any market. Um, there are typically companies that have a strong balance sheet and a, a good strategy, you know, I'll say like us, that would, uh, you know, we're, we're anxious to have the opportunity to partner up with some other firms. And we, we've enjoyed, a, you know, a pretty nice run. We, you know, this year we'll do about 24 billion. And again, with all deference to, to you know, my peers that are doing quite a bit more, I, I, we have a lot of peers that are doing a bit less. And, and there are some advantages to scale. Again, never, never discount the scrappiness of an independent mortgage banker. I don't, because I've been there and I respect my peers, uh, but as, I think a lot of the technology things that, that are becoming a norm and a requirement to reduce costs are really expensive. Cybersecurity is incredibly expensive just to pick one thing. And so scale does help us make those investments more proactively. And, and I think because of that, it'll be an attractive environment for some companies that um, maybe it's they need it from a, a strategic standpoint. There's also a lot of, I don't think this is a live picture. I'm 64 years old. I've put a management team in place to take my company into the next millennium. 
And, but there are, that's a long time, a thousand years, maybe. Okay, let's say the next century. And uh, so we're good, but there's a lot of principles of companies out there that had a great 2021s, great 2020s. And now they're saying, okay, what's the best thing for my people going forward? And uh, so companies like my ours could be part of that solution. And again, there's many other worthy peers out there. So I don't think anybody has to go out of business, but some people may choose to join up with other companies as a way to gain resources to create scale and create sustainability for, you know, the good people they employ. So, Kurt, let me ask just one question before we wrap up today. So how do you see the role of the loan officer changing? If you had to make a projection, not just for next year, but going forward, how that's going to look and, and what do you see it looking like? I happen to believe, and I'm biased, we, we operate a distributive retail platform. I believe that there will be a place for the experienced, knowledgeable loan officer who is willing and able and capable of building trust and confidence with real estate agents and with other financial professionals and with consumers. There's always going to be a certain contingent of consumers that would prefer a direct relationship as opposed to a relationship with a pod somewhere in the Midwest that's handling their loan or something like that. A local trusted resource is going to be attractive to the consumer to get their loan. And that said though, those originators are gonna need to embrace the technology solutions that streamline the process, like uh, automatic verification of deposits. It makes it so people don't have to provide bank statements and provide all those explanations that go with them that they can just verify their deposits electronically. There's a lot of resistance still in the industry to do that, there's actually less on the part of the consumer than there is on the part of the loan officer. But but that's just an example of one thing, and there will be many, many other things that an originator needs to embrace the utilization of that technology, because ultimately it's going to contribute to a better experience for the consumer. It'll also contribute to streamlining the, the originator's time. You know, far too many loan officers spend way too much of their biggest resource, which is their time, manually doing things that will be able to be automated. And by embracing those things, they capture that resource, their time back to go sell more. And and I think that that's going to be the most important thing for originators to do, to do is to uh, embrace technology, use it to their advantage. Don't fight it, embrace it, become more efficient. Um, and use these tools to create better experiences, experiences that matter for their consumers. So, Kurt, one last question. How how do you think the industry needs to make the outreach to younger people coming to join as a loan officer and join our business? Because it obviously has been talked about for years. I've heard it forever. I'm sure you have, too. Uh, What do you think are some of the strategies that really need to be in place so companies can recruit younger people and develop them? Well, I think, first of all, uh, the industry, the veterans in the industry have to embrace the reality that things have changed. This is a different generation mm-hmm. uh, and they have different expectations and that the industry is different. You know, For me to expect someone new coming into business to be successful the way I was, which I, you know, my, my new boss handed me a stack of cards and kicked me out of the office and I had to go figure it out. There's so much more an originator needs to understand, whether it's about compliance or operating systems or technology. So 
we have to create a more uh, inviting environment by providing tools and training for them to get up and running and even perhaps you know, compensation while they're doing so. So we've seen this problem for a long time. It's, it's something that's talked about at virtually every conference. And so four years ago, three years ago, we launched um, a, a program called Launchpad, which uh, saw, it directly addresses that issue. It brings in young professionals or professionals coming from another field. They don't have to necessarily be young, but um, we are recruiting at colleges and we are actively recruiting to bring in new talent, diverse talent as well, because that's another gap that the industry has is, is having sufficient originators to serve the diverse communities that, that we have in our country today. We're training loan officers. We're putting them through a 90 to 120 day program. We've trained over 250 loan officers in the last three years. Our current class has over 70 uh, students in it and they are coming out far better prepared than I was after 90 days of, on the job. I didn't know much of anything after 90 days on the job. I could barely spell refi after 90 days. And, uh, these guys, they come out, guys, young men, young women, seasoned professionals out of other fields that, that come into the industry far better prepared to go out and be successful. So that's what it's gonna take. I mean, we're gonna have to find, we just, the old school of just, you know, hiring them and throwing them with the wolves, doesn't work anymore. And that generation, the younger generation, really doesn't want to work that way. That's that's just not how they've been raised. So I think we have to be creative with things like Launchpad. Yeah, we're going to have to have you come back and talk about that because I agree with you 100% for sure. So just a couple takeaways from today. When you look at 2022, what would you like our listeners to take away? I like to take away. I think it's going to be a transitional year. I think it's one of those markets where we're pivoting as rates go up, refis will go down, and, and loan officers and, and operators, where you're running a branch for a company or you, you run your own company, obviously, we're going to have to pivot and transition into a different market. So it's, it's, uh, it's all about being prepared. That's, you know, the, that's the secret sauce is those transitions in the marketplace. And, and uh, I think that's the most important thing is be prepared for that higher interest rate environment and what impact it has on your business. Well, I think that's words of wisdom for sure for everybody listening today. And I want to thank Kirk for sharing his great thoughts on it. And I certainly appreciate all of you for spending your time with us today. Thanks so much, Kurt. Thank you very much, Pat. Honored for the opportunity and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We appreciate you spending time with us. If your sales team needs training in hiring and lead generation, schedule a free consultation by emailing me at pshirlock at qfsconsulting.com.